Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I was uh, reading the New York Times Sunday Magazine. There was this dashing sort of buccaneer-type fellow on the, uh, the cover of the magazine with flowing... Freebooting, my friends. Freebooting free look. Uh, with flowing long blonde hair, and there was a, uh, an article about this man's discoveries that said that uh, what he has discovered has sort of struck fear into the hearts of the U.S. government, established so many years ago, and it seemed uh, appropriate to try and find out exactly what it is that this cryptographer has done. I understand you have made the most astonishing discovery in the history of cryptography. Will you please welcome Whitfield Diffie to West Coast Live. Well, I'm reminded by what you say of the words of the sheriff of Menominee County, who, when asked by the press, they said, we understand the Menominee warriors are afraid you're going to attack tonight. And he said, I believe the Menominee warriors know no fear. You know, I, I, I doubt I've struck much fear into the hearts of the government. But, uh, um, but, your, but your discovery has, in essence, made it possible to create unbreakable coded information. Well, I think that's a misunderstanding that's been around from the beginning because we addressed that problem in part of what we did early on. But the, the thing we did that's been useful is to produce a mechanism whereby if you want to have a very widespread secure communication network so people are talking to people that they've never communicated with before, then they sort of need to be introduced by somebody. And in the past, it was always true that the person who introduced you could listen, could intercept and understand your communications if they wanted to. And uh, we discovered techniques that allow you to have an introducer who isn't able to understand any of the resulting conversation. So it's as though somebody says, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, and there's a private room in which you can talk. And you know that that person isn't listening just by benefit of having introduced you. And that's what's given rise to this, as the government sees it, a problem that it's trying to solve with these clipper chip proposal and key escrow and so forth. And that when I... Uh, We've stirred him up with the Declaration of Independence. I've got the Constitution here. I think we should just go and read that. Um, years ago, I heard Malcolm X talk, and it was at MIT where hissing is a big tradition. And he started about something. He says, you know, what's all this hissing? That's what the snakes were doing in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> so as a cryptographer, you're somebody who is experienced in codes. And ever since a little kid, you've been interested in codes and the transference of information through a, a secret method. But this has also been a time-honored institution for like thousands of years. That's how commanders of the Roman army would send messages into the field. And the secret is to keep codes secret. And you found a way in this, because otherwise people would break them and then you know, read the code, right? And the information would be known. And your piece of information applies to our computer time. Well, the, there's been a big tradition trend in the history of cryptography in which things have become less and less and less secret. At the time of the, of the Romans, the famous thing, I don't know what they did with their field commanders, but Julius Caesar kept, I think it's his diaries of the Gallic War in code. And at that time, 
the code and the, co the individual code and the coding method were indistinguishable. And during the Renaissance, we got this notion of a general system and a specific key. So you, it's pretty much like a lock and a key on a door. You know, you probably all have Schlage locks on your doors because they're very big around here, San Francisco. But all keys are different. There are about a million different kinds of keys. And so that evolved to where, in principle at least, cryptographic systems didn't have to be secret. As a matter of fact, we're making a step backwards with this new federal standard they've got because... 20 years ago, we had a standard adopted. It's now called the Data Encryption Standard, and it's public. There's an algorithm published in a federal publication, and you have a billion, billion different possible ways you can use this algorithm called the keys, and for any application, you select one of these billion, billion unique 56-bit strings. Uh, and now they have a new algorithm, and they've made this new algorithm public. Made the, sorry, they kept this new algorithm secret and made that a standard and said, if you want to use this new one, we give you the address of some guys in Torrance, California, and they'll sell you these chips if we like you. Um, so what we did was carry this step procedure one step further, right? And things have always depended on the secrecy of a key. And we split the key in two, so only half of it needs to be secret. So what happens if I want to send you a message... I go to a public directory, and I look up what we call your public key. And it has a unique relationship with something we call your private key. The two halves of something are manufactured simultaneously. As a matter of fact, I like to say it's a little bit like something called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle in physics. It says, you know, you can know the position of a particle or the velocity of a particle, but you can't know, the more you know about one, the less you know about the other. So here we can say, you know, if you want to pair a public key and a private key, you can have them. The system will produce them for you. And then you say, no, but I want the public key to look more like this. They say, okay, but it'll take more work to make the private key. You say, I want it to make it look exactly like this. It'll say, okay, I can give you a pair in which the public key looks just like that, but it's going to take me, you know, forever. The, unit, the stars are going to go out and stuff like that. So, so the point is, you're the only person who knows this private key that can decode the message I send you, but the key I encode it with doesn't have to be secret, so I can just go look it up in a phone directory. And we now call those, you know, we have a lot of buzzwords like key certification authority and things like that. And, but basically, those public keys circulate freely around the network, and if I, I just have to find yours from somebody who knows it, it's presented in a form that's called self-authenticating, so I can tell it really is yours. And we get off on a long string of technicalities of making a living off that for years. <laughs> very, very American in spirit. Yeah. So, uh, but the essence is, is, is it is possible to develop utterly private communication when making use of digital devices, um, digital cellular telephones, computer transference, banking information, credit card information, and so on. And the clipper chip is designed to circumvent this system. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, you say utterly private communications. You know, well, the uh, most important line in a novel called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by Le Carre has uh, two people sitting at dinner, Smiley and a ma man named Roddy Martindale, and Martindale says to him, but so-and-so never had any secrets from you, did he, Smiley? And Smiley says, you know, Roddy, that's the thing about secrets. You never know. <laughs> And uh, so we hope we've uh, got techniques for giving you pretty good uh, communications privacy. And what, what uh, the government's attitude is that they, uh, they are worried that somebody they don't like might use these systems. Uh, and so they, they put out a standard that not only is secret in how it functions, but it has what we call a trap door. They, uh, they pick the name key escrow. And it amounts to they keep an extra set of keys to your chip. So whatever, no matter what key you put into it, 
It works a little bit like the lockbox. You know, you go around looking at houses, and the real estate agent opens up a little box in the door and gets out the key to the door, opens the door. And it's like that. It sends out something. Uh, they used to call it the law enforcement exploitation field, but public relations got its hand on that, and now it's called the law enforcement access field. Uh, and that goes out at the beginning of the message, and they have a sort of a master key that can decode that field, and they have a whole lot of procedures and so forth. They, they you know, talk a lot about warrants and escrow agents and split the key in two pieces and so forth. But the thing really bothers us from a pure security point of view about this is that the big gain we've made uh, in the last 20 years in security, you'll see, if you think about the two big scandals the U.S. government's had in crypto security. In the 70s, they had some guys named Boise and Lee in L.A. who sold a lot of keys to the Russians. And in the 80s, they had a man named Whitworth across the bay here at Alameda, and he sold a lot of keys to the Russians. And all that came about because keys existed in their system for longer than they needed to. And so now we have a scheme whereby two secure telephones can call each other up. And then uh, you press a button and they negotiate between them a secret key that only exists in the telephones for the duration of the call. So it's very hard for it to leak. And this new scheme means the, so to speak, another copy of it back at headquarters and they keep it around indefinitely. And that gets you exactly what you really don't want in cryptography, is that years later, somebody can find a key and go back and read earlier traffic. What is, what is your sense of perspective in, as regards to privacy of communications with uh, both your invention and the, um, and the Clipper chip? Well, I mean, since it's the 4th of July weekend, I'll give you the revolutionary perspective. Uh, if you look back, you know, two centuries, the, uh, the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791. And at that time, any two people could have a private conversation just by exercising a little prudence. I mean, you walk off down the road, away from the buildings, you look around, see no one's hiding in the bushes, and you have more privacy than anyone else, ha anyone has in the world today. Right? Because there were no tape recorders, there were no shotgun microphones, there were no, you know, body, federal body wires. I mean, you really knew you were talking just between the two of you. Right? I mean, the way we are now, except for... I mean, and um, so at that time, we had a notion, you know, if you study um, Madison saw very clearly at that time, there's a problem in democracy, that you no longer have the notion of the divine right of the king. And so come into sort of paradox, which is why the people are bound by the law when the people are the source of the law. And the answer to that paradox is that it's, it really, the legitimacy of the law grows out of the legitimacy of the democratic process. And in order to preserve the legitimacy of that process, you need to guarantee the freedom of political speech. That's the hard core of the First Amendment. Nobody fights much about that today, right? I mean, they fight about artistic speech, erotic speech, things of that kind. They don't much fight about this hard core of political speech. And then, a lot of political speech achieves its value from the fact that it's private. Right? You talk to people on the phone, and these days, the other point about this is, of course, the phone stands side by side with, you know, the bar room, the workplace, the bedroom, and so forth. This place to talk about politics these days. And you talk on the phone with your aides about how you're going to vote on a bill if you're a politician. You talk with your friends about how you're going to vote. And lest you think that, you know, you don't find I wasn't sure you could actually find a clear statement in the founding documents about the privacy. My wife pointed out to me that we have a secret ballot, right? I mean, that's privacy and political action is essential 
in the methodology. So if you're going to have any way of preserving the legitimacy of political speech today, I think you have to preserve the privacy of political speech in telecommunications, which is where communications are going. There, there are people who, um, who, who take the opposite point of view that, that uh, the clipper chip will enable, this is the government point of view, will enable uh, the government, if necessary, with a warrant to eavesdrop on, say, terrorists planning to bomb the World Trade Center. And that with this encryption scheme, the phone calls will be untappable. Um, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Well, the response is a little bit complicated. Let me say on one side that, of course, the thing we worry about is within our own lifetimes, we had a sitting regime in this country, the Nixon administration, use electronic surveillance against its political opponents. So that's the reason you worry so much about electronic intercept as a law enforcement technique. Now, the FBI have been saying that they're, you know, this is a very, very valuable technique to them and that they're going to lose it or that they are losing it. They say different things at different times. They unfortunately don't defend this argument very well because wherever they talk, when, when the head of the FBI talked for the Senate, he said in every instance, he said electronic surveillance, which is what the law says, and that includes bugs and things like that. And it's not even clear that wiretaps are getting worse. The way in which wiretaps are getting better is twofold. First, people do more talking on the telephone because it's a much better piece of instrument for communication that was 10, 20 years ago. Second place, all the room bugs and things like that, you know, they get smaller and cheaper and more secure and everything else, just the way all other electronics does. So I think that their technical interception capabilities are getting better, and if there's some failure of law enforcement, you have to look for it somewhere other than in their high-tech crime-fighting tools. Have you ever had your own house swept for bugs? Uh, well, I didn't do it. <laughs> You know, I mean, it may be that when they do an installation for you, they give you a, you know, full-service job and look to be sure nobody else has any bugs there before they put their own in, but... Uh, <laughs> so you don't know whether your house has been swept? Oh, no, I don't know. Uh, it's a uh, very difficult thing, sweeping for bugs these days. That's not my, my, not my part of the business at all. Do you find yourself careful about what you say on the phone nowadays? Oh, I, I've uh, been uh, paranoid for years. <laughs> And I think, the, uh, I think the, the important thing is, I may have recognized for 20 years, since I was working with Marty Hellman the first round of this, uh, this argument, that uh, it's very, very difficult to avoid using the phone. We were living, I was living in Berkeley, he was living down at Stanford, and so we were 50 miles apart. It's exceedingly difficult to avoid talking on the phone. And these days, fortunately, you know, we have various sorts of secure phones. I, for one, have four of them on my desk, but uh, the... Uh, that's, uh, you know, where I hope to see things go in terms of personal, private communications. And uh, If someone wanted to, to read more about cryptography and, and your particular, both art and science, um, what would be a good place to turn? I mean, didn't, your paper was called, like, New Developments in Cryptography? New Directions. New Directions in Cryptography. I don't know. I mean, the people are kind enough to say that's a historic paper. I don't know whether it's the best thing to read at this moment. If you really, you know, down to the nitty-gritty, uh, a man named Bruce Schneier has written a new book called Applied Cryptography, uh, Algorithms, Something, and Source Code, Algorithms, Protocols, and Source Code. And that's one direction. If you want to get a real feel for this, um, there are two great insider memoirs that have been written in the last 12, 15 years. The first one was a man named, man named Gordon Welshman's, now out of print. It's called Hut Six Story. It's about Hut Six at Bletchley Park, which is the famous place that the British were reading German cryptography. And the other one's called Spycatcher by a man named Peter Wright, who has to live down in Australia these days. 
And the uh, thing you learn in that one... Is he the one who used to be with the CIA? No, he used to be with MI5. And the most the really exciting thing in that book is that he talks about some, some cryptographs, some messages sent in the 1930s and 1940s by the Russians. And they were still being attacked in the 1970s by uh, NSA and GCHQ. And so, you know, you think if you have a crypto system today, somebody's going to be working on it in 2035, 2040 with some computer you never imagined. And it's, if you think about designing any crypto systems, this is the one to set you thinking. Whitfield Diffie, cryptographer extraordinaire. Thank you very much for talking about this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.